It's, uh, it's great to see y'all today. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. Hope you always feel welcome to come uh, to First Baptist. We're glad to have you worshiping with us. Uh, you kind of come, if it's your first time, right in the middle of a series. Uh, we're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. And the title of this series is, in, is Breakthrough. And the reason it's entitled Breakthrough is because when, when Mark wrote his gospel, about 58, 60 AD, right in there, he was writing primarily to Gentiles, and he wanted those Gentiles to experience the love of a Jesus, the love of a God they never knew before. I mean, this, this was a whole new thing in the Gentile world. Christianity was becoming primarily Gentile. I mean, Gentiles were coming to Christ. The Jews had kind of moved away. Uh, Mark wrote his gospel for those Gentiles. And so we see this breakthrough for them. He wrote it primarily from the standpoint of Peter. Like he, got his, he got his stuff probably from Peter. And so he could really, wrote, he wrote a little bit shorter gospel. It's the shortest of the four. And to really connect uh, to those uh, people who came from pagan backgrounds. And uh, so today, kind of in the middle of the sermon series, sermon number eight, we see breaking to Jesus. And uh, we're going to talk about you've got to break from something. You know, you got to break away from your lifestyle. You got to break away from your sin. You got to break from your old religion, but you got to break to somewhere and to break to Jesus. And what I really want you to see in, in the sermon today is that breaking to Jesus is based on who he is, what he did, and what he calls us to do. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And then what did Jesus call us to do? And so in today's message, there are really three things that I hope for you to see uh, today. And the first is this. I want you to see a confession about Jesus. Now, the passage we're in, Mark chapter 8, tells of a, of a series of events that is paralleled in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew's account is a lot longer. Um, it's got more detail. Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience. And, uh, and he writing Matthew to, to remind the Jews, you got to come to Jesus. So some of the stuff he has is, is probably it fits more to a Jewish audience. And normally when I preach uh, from these series of events, I preach Matthew's account because it's longer and more detailed. And normally it's like a four or five sermon series. So I'm going to go like four or five sermons into one. So I mean, I'm really, I'm not going to cover everything in detail and I'm going to talk like super, super fast. So you got to really listen super, super fast to get it all, to get, to get the stuff in there. Um, what we have in, in, this, in this scripture passage is halfway through the Gospel of Mark, but we are well over halfway into the ministry of Jesus. In fact, there's about six months away until you get to the cross. If, if Easter this year is April 17th, so, you know, six months, we'd be, be in October. You, you're October-ish, kind of six months out. And, and Mark, Jesus is basically, he's still doing his public ministry for all the people, but he's got to get his disciples. He's got to get those 12 guys. He's got to get them fixed. One of them, Judas, will never get fixed. But he's got to get them on board. So he's really going to begin focusing in on them. And he does it by taking them away from the Sea of Galilee, where Mark has most of his ministry, up to the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north. So this gorgeous hill country setting. I come, uh, I was born and raised in the very edge of the hill country in central Texas. You know, and, and so you know, I, I can picture the area where I'm from, you know, the hills, the, the rocks, the trees, the greenery, the rugged roughness of it. And, and just be a beautiful setting. And 
And this is a place, Caesarea Philippi, there would be these cliffs and hills. In fact, there was a, there was a community, a town on this massive rock. Matthew brings out this more than Mark, uh, called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Caesarea Philippi uh, was originally a town called Peneus. It was called Peneus because in those rugged cliffs, it was believed by the Greeks in their mythology that their god Pan came from those cliffs, those caves. So it's called Peneus, and later on, Herod, Herod the Great kind of rebuilt the, the town, and his son Herod Philip, who was, was the tetrarch, the ruler of that area, kind of named it after Caesar, uh, Augustus Caesar. So it was Caesar, you know, Caesarea, and then he named it Philippi because there were multiple uh, Caesarea. So he kind of had that name. It was a place of great religious significance. I mean, to the Jews, um, when, when, when they had crossed into the promised land, that was the home area of Dan. And so it had religious significance to the worship of Yahweh. In fact, it also had a corrupt religious significance because when Jeroboam broke away from you know, the kingdom of Israel and, and he broke away from Rehoboam and established the northern kingdom, he built two golden altars, fake altars. And one of them he put in Dan. So it had this kind of, for the Jews, this good and this bad kind of connotation for worshiping God. It was a place where the pagans had worshiped the Baals. It was in a high place, a rocky area. They may have sacrificed their children there. With all the rocks, you could probably have some remnants of some altars there. It was the, the place where I said where the Greeks believed Pan had come from. And even though emperor worship really by the time of Christ wasn't in full, full force, there was at least this homage to Caesar. So that it had this huge religious connotation to it. Six months out from the cross, Jesus has kind of taken the 12 away. Later on, at some point in the story, the masses find him. But he's, for a little while, he's got the 12. <clears throat> and here's the thing that it matters for these guys. It was time for the disciples to break away from their religious system and break towards Jesus. The time had come. Guys, 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 guys. You got to break away. You got to completely break away from that old religious system. You got to break towards me. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. There were small little, just little hamlet villages around that whole area. And on the way, he questioned his disciples. And Matthew's account is kind of like, okay, he, he kind of stopped in this place where you can see Caesarea Philippi, all, all the significance of all the religions. And so he's saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now, come on, you guys got your ear to the ground. You know those people out there when we did all the healings and the feedings and all that. Who do the people say that I am? And so they told him. Here's what it says. And say, some were saying this. Some were saying John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but others were the prophets. Now, they didn't believe me that these people came back to life because they didn't believe in that. And, and John, they didn't believe John the Baptist came back to life. Jesus was a contemporary. But they're saying, your ministry, what you're doing, reminds them of John or Elijah or some other prophet. And they probably had a discussion about this. And then in verse 29, and he continued by questioning them. What about you? But who do you say that I am? The you is emphatic. I mean, but it's like you guys. You. Who do you say that I am? It's a pretty haunting question. Who do we ever say that Jesus is? Now, Peter answered. Some think he answered for the group. Maybe. But Peter's Peter. I mean, he's just going to get it out there. So here's what he says. You are the Christ. Just a phenomenal statement. In Matthew's account, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Mark didn't feel the need to put that in there. We're not going to focus on that, but you're the Christ. You, 
and only you are the Christ. If you have the NIV, it says Messiah, because that's what the Christ means. And so here you have this unbelievably significant statement. Now, you've got to recognize that Peter probably didn't understand the fullness of what that statement is, because to Peter and those other guys, they had a certain mindset about the Christ, the Messiah. And so they still would have been trapped to some degree in their religious system. To them, the Christ, the Messiah, he would have, he would have been this great figure that comes from the house of David. And he, he would have gathered up the people for one triumphant battle against their enemies. Here, it would have been the Romans. Defeat the Romans and forever establish the kingdom of God for the Jews. And his disciples would be a part of that. And so they knew that Jesus was the Christ. There was no question about that. But they probably didn't understand what that fully meant. They were probably still at least somewhat trapped into that Jewish way of thinking. And that was okay. Jesus, Jesus is good with that. Matthew tells us. That Jesus commends him for what he says, even if he didn't fully get it. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. And then looking at all that mess of rocks everywhere, Jesus may have picked one up and he said, Peter, you're, you're now the rock. Can you imagine if you're a guy getting that nickname, I'm the rock. You can't give yourself that nickname. Guys, if you give yourself that nickname, if you start calling yourself the rock, and you're a loser. Yeah, you really are. Unless you're Dwayne Johnson. He can call himself whatever he wants, that rock. But I mean, and Jesus gave him the nickname. I can see Peter, yeah, I'm the rock. Jesus says, I'm the rock. Little rock, but rock. And then Jesus said, and he looked at that massive cliff. And he said, but upon that rock, I will build my church. That doesn't mean, Jesus didn't build the church on Peter. Doesn't say that. Nor did he build it on the statement Peter made about faith. Church isn't built on faith. Church is built on Jesus. He is the rock. But he commends Peter for what he says. And it brings up kind of an interesting question. Can you legitimately claim that Jesus is Christ or Lord without understanding what that means? I mean, seriously, do you have to understand fully what it means? I was nine when I gave my life to Jesus. I mean, I grew up in the church. My mom raised me in the church. Raised me Baptist. It's all I've ever known. When I was nine years old, I gave my life to Jesus. I know I did. I didn't understand all that that meant. I'm 50 plus years later. I mean, I've been a pastor for over 40 years, 41 plus. I got multiple degrees. I still don't know what it means for Jesus to be the Christ fully. You don't have to fully understand it. You'll never fully understand it. And as Christians, we got to quit trying to get people to check off boxes. I mean, yeah, we want to correct mistakes, but they're never going to fully get it. It doesn't change the relationship with Jesus. There are things I realized, there are things I found out about my family I never fully realized. I found out, I found out my grandfather, for crying out loud, I found out my grandfather was a mime. No one knew it. He never talked about it. <laughs> I said, Lord, I won't do it if you tell me not to. He never told me not to. <laughs> Ten years ago tomorrow, I buried my mama. And uh, the night before, which had been 10 years ago today, we had the viewing at, at the funeral home. And this family comes up to me, even my sisters are standing there. And oh, they said, you know, they, you know, they say, you know, 
David, we just loved your mama. We loved Gigi. Gigi was fantastic. Gigi this, Gigi that. They walked away. I looked at my sisters. I said, who the heck is Gigi? She goes, that's mom. I said, no. Mom was Grammy. I have the oldest grandkid. She named her. Who are these people? They said, well, you didn't realize this, but mom had a secret family. I'm like, what? I'm the eldest of the family. I am the number one of everybody. They kept this from me. She goes, yeah, for the last five, six years, she's been watching this family, this fairly wealthy family. And she started watching these kids when they were little, little. And, and they're like, she's like a grandparent to them. She goes to grandparents, they at the school and buy her gifts. And sometimes she spends the night over there in house sits and all that. And, and she's Gigi. I mean, okay. I found something new about my mom. Let me tell you something. It didn't change anything. It didn't change the way. My mom had a secret life she kept from her favorite human on earth. <laughs> Did it change anything because there were things I didn't understand about my mom? No. Listen, you're never going to fully understand everything there is to understand. It's okay. I still don't. And we got to quit expecting people to meet a certain level of knowledge. He is the Christ. If they confess that with all their heart, it's okay. We'll start with that. Verse 30 says this, and he warned them to tell no one about it. <laughs> Jesus said, all right, Rock, you and the rest of the guys, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Well, we said, why? Because it wasn't time. If the disciples had it wrong about Jesus to some degree, if they didn't fully understand what it means to be from the Christ, the people wouldn't. So hold on. In seven months, you can tell them all about me, but not right now. So here's the thing. This phenomenal confession about Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, but you are the Christ, speaks of the who of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We trust Jesus because of who he is. So tell people about the who. We trust him because he is the Christ. We trust him with our life because he is the Messiah. Regardless of what type he may be, he is it. So we tell people that Jesus is the Christ. Not only do we have a confession about Jesus, the second thing I want you to see is the evidence for the confession. There has to be some evidence. How did Jesus demonstrate Truly, he was the Christ. I mean, no, he did miracles and he taught me of all that. But what else? So Jesus is going to tell them something. He's going to tell them something that's going to be really radical to their way of thinking. That's almost kind of a mind-blowing thing. He's not just going to tell it once. Over the next three weeks, we're going to see he told this to them three times. Chapter 8, we have it. Chapter 9, chapter 10. We're going to look at it in detail the next two weeks. So I'm not going to go as much detail now. But he told them. And this is what he told them. In verse 31, he began to teach them repeatedly over this little period of time that the Son of Man, that is how he referenced himself as Messiah, must suffer many things. He's going to suffer physically. Just like Isaiah 52 and 53 talked about the suffering Messiah. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, completely disowned by all the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. The religious leaders are going to completely reject him. And he's going to be killed and after three days, rise again. Jesus is telling them about 
the cross. He was pointing to the cross, the death and the resurrection. That is the ultimate evidence that Jesus is the Christ. That is the message we preach, the cross. Paul says, I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is the message of the cross that we proclaim. We're coming into the Easter season. At the heart of that is the cross. And if there'll be churches everywhere call themselves Christian who'll never touch the cross. They'll preach about the love of Jesus. They'll preach about the ministry of Jesus. But they're never going to get to the cross because people find the cross hard to accept. Peter did. Verse 32. And after he was stating the manner plainly, I mean, Jesus was just laying out plain as could be. Peter, like, takes him aside. It's like, Jesus, come here. I'm the rock now, right? <laughs> the rock is going to intervene. And began to rebuke him. Correct him. Like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You can't talk that way. I, I can, you can just see him telling Mark, Mark, you're not going to believe what I did. You're not going to believe what I did to Jesus. I took him aside to correct him. Not going to look well. Verse 33, but turning around and seeing the disciples. So here's Jesus. Peter's got him corrected. Jesus turns around. There's all those disciples staring. <laughs> he, <clears throat> he rebuked Peter. He said, and he said this, the rock got this next line. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Hey, Satan, get back. Your heart isn't with God. But with men. Can you imagine being called Satan by Jesus? I mean, come on. When I was at First Baptist Laredo, there was a, a if you're not familiar with Baptist life, uh, we have associations we voluntarily are part of. And in our association, Laredo, you know, we were there. And Laredo's a very much like El Paso, except smaller and very, it's even intensely more Hispanic and Catholic and connected to Mexico than El Paso. And so we, we had a guy there from one of the denominational guys. He was a there to kind of work with Hispanic churches. And he told the Hispanic pastors, that's what he told them about me one time. He said that I was the white Satan. I'm like, why? White Satan? Why not just Satan? Why am I the white Satan? I don't know. Well, I can say this. In Bobby, denominational hat calling me a white Satan wasn't a problem. But if Jesus was to call me Satan, that's going to be a whole other issue. You see, when Peter started thinking like Peter, instead of like Jesus, he got in trouble. That's what he did. He said, Jesus, you, you, you can't go to the cross. That's not what the Messiah does. The Messiah doesn't go to the cross. I know this because I'm the rock. He doesn't go to the cross. He forgot the whole raise up three days later part. He forgot all of that. Here's the thing. The cross is fundamental to our salvation. Without the cross, there's no salvation. At the cross, Jesus took and paid the price for our sins. Let me tell you something. Who Jesus is doesn't matter if he never took care of our sin problem. What Jesus did mattered. He did what no one else could 
or did do. He went to the cross, died for our sins, was buried. And on the third day, God raised him back to life. That's the evidence for who he is. Who he is matters, yes. So does what he did. See, we trust Jesus for what he did. Tell people about the what. We trust Jesus because of what he did. The cross. So tell them about the what. So we have the confession. The evidence that that confession is real. And now we have the significance of the evidence. What is the significance of all that? Jesus makes one of the great statements ever made. Now, earlier Jesus had said, repent. That's the very first message from Mark. Repent, believe the gospel. The idea of repenting is you're going one way. You realize you're going the wrong way. You pivot and turn around, but you have to go somewhere else. So he says, you believe the gospel. You move towards the gospel. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You never lose sight of that. To repent is ultimately means to, you have to have faith. To have faith means you repent it. They go together. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> Verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. By now the crowd has showed up. And he said to them, if anyone wishes... In other words, there's the potential that someone might want to do something. What is it to come after me, to follow me, to be my disciple? We might say to be a Christian. If anyone wants to be a Christian, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus would have spoke Aramaic. They wrote in Greek. And to capture the fullness of what he said, there are three imperatives, three commands Two of them go together because they speak of immediate decision at the moment. One of them speaks of a continual activity. He said, you deny and you take up. Those are commands written to express a one-time decision. There is a moment you deny and you take up. Now, you deny yourself. We live for ourselves. One of the things that I share on a regular basis is that the fundamental sin of all of life is that we want to be the God of our own life. That's it. You go back to the Garden of Eden. The temptation was, you'll be like God. We want to be God of us. We actually want to be God of everybody, but we want to start with us. It is an extreme selfishness. Jesus says you have to deny yourself. You have to say no to yourself. You have to, in essence, it's like repenting. You come to a place, and this can't continue. You can't keep being God. You repent. You deny. And then he says... Take up your cross. To take up your cross was to die. They all knew that. The cross was not the whole egg, the whole T, but it was just a cross beam. At his crucifixion, Jesus carried the cross beam. Because he was so beaten, he couldn't finish the journey. Someone else carried it for him. But to take up your cross was to move in a direction to death. You were going to die. They all knew it. By the time Mark wrote this, Nero was emperor. Within a few years, Nero would line the streets leading to Rome with the bodies of Christians being crucified. And they would tar them and light them up in the evenings to provide light down the roads. Back then, Christians knew to take up your cross, even at the time of Jesus, was to die. 
Now today we, you know, I hear guys today say, well, today that just means you got to be willing to die. Oh, no, it doesn't mean that. That is so weak. We have, there is no danger of you and I dying for our faith in America. No one's going to, no, the government's not going to persecute you to take your life for being a Christian. So it doesn't mean you're just willing to. It means you die. What it means is this. You have denied yourself and you have pivoted to believe the gospel, to pick up your cross. You have moved to the cross of Christ. In other words, just as Jesus moved to the cross, so have you. You have died to yourself so that you completely live for Jesus. To deny yourself is to die to yourself. What do you replace it with? You replace it with Jesus. You replace you with Jesus. And then he says, the evidence of that is you follow me every single day. You live a journey of following Jesus. To repent and believe, to deny and to take up, same thing. It leads to following Christ. I said this on the second message. This was the heart of that message. Christians follow Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. If you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. You follow him every day of your life. Now, Jesus went on to say more to them. And very quickly, let me read that to you. Verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life. The word life is the Greek word suke. It means soul. It's the essence of who you are. It's the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the mental, the relational. It is the real you. Whoever wishes to save you, if you want to save you, you'll lose your life. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, if you want to deny me and live for you, that's fine. But you're going to lose your soul. You're going to lose your soul. But if you will deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, I'll save your soul. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's where we live today. People live for today. I want to live for me. I want to gain the whole world. <laughs> you understand we're eternal beings. We live forever. Everybody spends somewhere, forever somewhere. If you simply live for this world, you have forfeited your life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will he give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38 says this. For whoever is ashamed of me, whoever denies me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. In other words, if you live for the world and you deny me, you reject me. The son of man, that is Jesus, will be ashamed of him. He'll reject him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. One day we're going to stand in the glory of Jesus. If we rejected Jesus, he will acknowledge our rejection of him. And he will reject you. He'll give you exactly what you wanted. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. It's a total commitment of your life. Understand this. Jesus calls for the total commitment of your life. Just as he totally committed his life for you.
He went to the cross. He completely gave his life for you and for me. It makes sense that in return, he would ask for our life. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough religious things. There's no way to buy your salvation. There's no way to earn your salvation. There's no way to be good enough for all of that. No, 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 no. But what Jesus wants is very simple. He wants you. And since he is the Christ, Jesus has a claim and a call upon your life. And we must follow that call. That is the significance of what Jesus did. The who and the what leads to Jesus calling us. And he's looking at those guys and he's telling them it's time to make a break from the old religious system. And you need to break this way. Breaking to Jesus is possible because of who he is, what he did, and what he calls us to do. Have you denied, taken up, and followed Jesus? You need to do that. There's no other way for your sins to be accounted for. Jesus took care of your sin problem. You can't take care of your sin problem, but Jesus took care of it. But you need to trust him with your life. You need to take your life and give it to him. I pray you'll do that. If not today, then at some point over these next few weeks and months, repent and believe. Take up, deny, follow Christ. If you're ready to do that now, you can. In just a moment, we'll be standing here. You can come and say, I want to give my life to Jesus, ladies. If you'd rather talk to another woman, you can do that as well. But you can come and trust Christ to be your Savior. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you really deny yourself? Are you living a life to glorify God? Or are you still living for yourself? You're a follower of Jesus. You can't live for yourself. Stop doing that. Maybe you want to renew your relationship with Christ. We can pray with you. We can pray for you. For someone you love, I know you got family members, kids, people you love. You want us to pray for them? Absolutely. If you want to join our church, you can. I don't know what it is you need us to do, but here's what I know you need to do. You need to break to Jesus. And you need to do that today. Father, praise God. Thank you so much for Christ who died in our place and on our behalf. He went to that cross. He died for us. Because of who he is, he did what he did. And both the who and the what matter. Because the who and the what make it possible for us to be saved. And you call us. You have that claim on our life. So, Father, I pray that we'll give our life to you through faith in Christ. And trust him. And have that breakthrough moment where we break to Jesus. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front. You can come.